It's probably safe to presume that today's text is a spoiler regarding the topic of today's sermon. Uh, If you didn't catch it, we're glad you're awake now. Uh, The topic is pride. Jonathan Edward calls pride the worst viper that is in the heart. The greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. He observed pride to be the most difficult sin to root out and the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. C.S. Lewis says this. He calls pride the essential vice, the utmost evil. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Those are strong words. But the words I agree with wholeheartedly. And because experience teaches me of my own need to become familiar with these truths, today I want to expose pride as being three things. Pride is the original sin. Pride is the root of all sin. And pride is the deadliest sin of all. But I'm not just going to leave us there. I want to close today by sharing the Bible's remedy for pride. Our means of mortifying it. But before I preach, we should pray. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father of glory, Father, would you bless this preaching of the word? Would you help me to speak with clarity and boldness, but always in truth? And Father, would you bless the hearing and the hearts of those that are gathered together today for the preaching of your word? For those in Christ, would you build up and edify them through your truth? And for those, Christ, who are here today, absent his presence in their life, absent his salvation in their heart, Lord God, would you reveal truth to them today that leads to the cross. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for this opportunity to hear it preached. In the name of our gracious King, Jesus Christ the Lord, amen. Before opening up on the four points of this sermon, three points and a, and a closure, it's important that we each have a clear understanding of what is meant by the sin of pride. Is pride what we find in the story of the nurse who thought herself so beautiful that whenever she took a man's pulse, she deducted five points to account for her presence? Or is pride that thing we hear from the Pharisee where the tax collector is far off and he's boastfully praying that he's so thankful that God didn't make him like that man. Whether outward or inward, whether worldly or spiritual, pride is much more than mere vanity. Vanity is just that observable tip of a much larger, deeper, 
and much more dangerous sin. Now, the world defines pride as a good and a virtuous thing. We're taught that it's important to have pride in one's country, in one's community, and above all, in oneself. Pride is taught as a means of maintaining or raising personal or communal standards. Pride is taught as a means of group unity, overcoming challenge, and even lifting someone's spirits. Pride is so promoted these days that we no longer to struggle to win, we just need to participate to earn a trophy. But nowhere in God's word is pride viewed as a virtue. The Bible does say a great deal about pride. It's just that all that it says about pride is negative. Listen to these these few verses. And it's just a few from among many. But this should give us an idea of God's perspective on pride. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 21, 24, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Isaiah 2, 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And James 4, 6, the first portion says it quite succinctly, God opposes the proud. So what is pride? Pride is doing what I want to do instead of what God has commanded of me. Pride is the lie that we tell ourselves when we tell ourselves we deserve anything other than judgment and death. Pride is the subconscious belief that we should be in the place of God with our will sovereign. Determining our own destiny and purpose. Pride is declaring ourselves good when God's word declares us dead. Pride places and holds me at the center of my life instead of God. Pride makes me an idol. And that was how pride caused the original sin. When we think of original sin, we typically envision images of the scene we find in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. The accounting of man's first sin. But that's not the first record of sin in Scripture. Before the serpent tempted Eve, he fell from grace himself. And he fell from heaven too. Satan's prideful fall is recorded in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Ezekiel 28, 14, 15. Add to that with the prophetic writings initially directed at the king of Tyre, but also directed at the enemy of the heart. It says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. You see, Satan, King James Version, names him Lucifer, was one of, if not the greatest of all created creatures. But as Isaiah told us, he wasn't satisfied with the role and the stature that God had established for him. In his arrogance, seeing himself more highly than he ought to, he said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. He sought a place above God. Fancied himself sitting on God's heavenly throne. His pride led him to believe that he should be an authority not only over his fellow angels, but over the Creator as well. And Satan's desire for worship has in no way lessened. We see that in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. It's the third attempt. His temptation of Christ. It says, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. I don't know that there's a level of arrogance beyond our asking God to worship us. But that was the level of arrogance that Satan displayed on that day. So sinful pride, Satan's sinful pride, is the first and original sin recorded in Scripture. But of course... As we all know far too well, as we all know far too personally, mankind has a first sin account of our own. So let's go back for a moment to Genesis 3, 1 through 7 and read through that account. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If we carefully look, we'll see there that Adam and Eve's sin wasn't merely disobedience in eating the forbidden fruit. That was sin. That was disobedience. But their eating the fruit was sin acted out. An outward expression of a decision already made in the mind and rooted in their hearts. Let's watch how this played out. After first luring Eve into doubting the accuracy of God's word, Satan next leads her to doubt its authority by directly contradicting God's word with a lie. But then, Satan sets the hook of pride. Appealing to it and telling them that the fruit will open their eyes, making them like God. And giving them the knowledge of God. So with the same desire to stand in the place of God and sit on the throne of God behind Satan's fall is man's fall as well. If you're old enough to remember him, comedian Flip Wilson popularized the phrase, the devil made me do it. But that's not what happened here. That's not the case here. The devil didn't make them do anything. Satan's twisting of God's word, nor his outright lies, caused Eve to sin. What Satan did was awaken something in Eve's heart. A belief that to be like God meant not having to serve God because she would be God's equal. In believing the serpent's lie, Eve believed that God was holding them back from their divine potential. I mean, after all, why tend God's garden 
when as God myself, someone else can be tending mine. But let's not forget Adam, who was with her. He offers no arguments and shows no hesitation in taking the fruit from her hand. I see no reason to doubt that along with sharing the fruit, Adam shared her sinful pride in desiring to be like God. But not even the consequence of sinful pride. Not even the shame, the ruin, the separation, and ultimately death. And it was the same for all. Satan, Adam, and Eve, and us, none of that can hold back our sinful pride. Pride has no demographic. It doesn't affect just the young or just the old. We are born with a sense of pride. It doesn't care whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't care whether you're educated or illiterate. It doesn't care whether your body is sound or broken. Pride infects each of us. And it's endless. That's evidenced in verses 12 and 13 from that third chapter of Genesis. Even with all of that resulting from their sinful pride, listen to Adam and Eve's response to God's question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Both of them passed the buck. Eve says, the serpent deceived me. But listen to whom Adam and the object of his ultimate blame is. The woman you gave me. She enticed me. In Adam's opinion, this is ultimately all God's fault. It's God's wrongdoing. In Adam's mind, if I had been God, none of this would have ever happened. Don't we often think that way ourselves? Yeah, I know I'm in a mess, but it's not my fault. Just look at the circumstances surrounding my sin. These weren't the responses of broken and contrite hearts. These are the kind of deflective responses we'd think from some, or expect from someone caught in arrogant and willful rebellion against God. Yet sin, but it's their fault. It's their fault. It's your fault. Never mind. 
And even beyond the fall, pride continues to be man's most insidious and pervasive sin. From the story of Cain killing his own brother in a fit of prideful jealousy, to those now sitting here, and the one now preaching here, man is still a creature consumed with pride. Romans 1, 18 through 21 is a helpful reminder of our current human condition. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes... Namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why does mankind suppress the truth? Why does he not glorify God? Why are we unthankful? Why are our imaginations vain and our heart darkened? Because we do not glorify God as God. But not only don't we want to glorify God, we want to be God. We want to be the one having sole authority over our lives. That's why the unbeliever is determined to find and is ready to accept anything that looks like it might be a means of masking the evidences of God's hand in creating and sustaining the universe. They're desperately needing a reason. Let's call that an excuse. Enabling them to ignore what has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. But pride isn't only original sin. It's also the root of all sin. It's the same foolish and prideful hearts driving us to sin against God that also drives us to sin against others. Thomas Aquinas said of pride, Inordinate self-love is the cause of every sin. The root of pride is found to consist in man not being in some way Subject to God and His rule. In Matthew 5, through several examples, we learn that the sin of our hearts is still very much sin, even if it's not acted out. For instance, Jesus taught that merely looking at someone other than your spouse with lustful intent, is adultery. So when someone's involved in pornography and they say, well, at least I'm not committing adultery, Jesus says, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You're committing it in your heart. He expands on that thought in Matthew 15 verses 18 and 19, where we learn that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. This verse says that all wickedness of our mouths, minds, and actions can be traced back to our heart. So what is it that's in our heart giving birth to these sinful words, thoughts, and deeds? The brother of Jesus provides us the answer in James 3, 13 through 16. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For what jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. And every vile practice. Now there are many biblical passages offering us lists of sin. Some of them include Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. And Revelations 22, 12 through 16. But no passage names every sin. And I'm not going to try to name every sin either. The reality is, is that we are creatures of sin and we keep inventing new ways so I could never catch up. But working from the list we just read in Matthew 5.19, we can see that sin, like a river, flows outward from our hearts. And that all our sin pours forth from a fountainhead of pride. Listen again to the list. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Let's walk through those real quickly. I mean, this isn't going to be a full discourse on any of them. But I think through this you'll get, a, get an idea of how pride is centerpiece in all of these. When people benefit us, when they're good towards us, we don't think evil of them. In fact, we encourage them to continue in that kind of behavior. After all, we're worthy and deserving of goodness, respect, and benevolence. But should they fail to meet our requirement of them? Or worse yet, should they turn against us? Let them bruise our sinful pride. And we quickly see them in a very, very different light. Our thoughts about them are much less kind, much less good, but rather turn evil and hateful. In our anger, particularly murderous anger, what we've done is lift ourselves pridefully above the object of our anger. 
And from such an elevated place of superiority, we can look down on them, judge them, and perhaps execute them. We're angry when another has so offended, so violated, so failed our expectation and demand of them that we believe they deserve wrath. And whether it's physical or spiritual or acting out in sexually immoral ways, declares that God has denied us some degree of pleasure that we are deserving of. Whether single or married, we demonstrate our belief that God has failed to provide us the suitable partner that we deserve. It's not my responsibility to exhibit self-control. It's God's responsibility to satisfy my every desire. I lie for the selfish benefit of it. Either I gain from the lie or I avoid loss by it. In thievery, I take what is not mine, believing I no less deserve it. That its price was paid by another carries no concern for me, as I'm worthier than they are to begin with. I gossip and slander to turn eyes from me and on to others. Not because others are greater than me, but so that I might look and sound better than they. By pointing out the failures, shames, and sins of others, I keep people from seeing my own. Sin of spoken of in whispers and carried out in secret In the darkness of night, we hide our sins from discovery. We make every effort to erase all trace, take every care to bury its evidence. It's not evil actions that produce our pride. Just as it did in the garden, evil only produces shame. It's quite the reverse, with pride being the root of every evil. Romans 8, 7 tells us that the natural man is at enmity with God. That means he's got an inborn hatred of God and stands in opposition to Him. And there's no sin more offensive to God than our sinful pride. Pride is in perpetual war against God's authority, God's law, and God's rule. The proud man wants God's glory all for himself and so wants to rob God of that which only he is rightful and worthy of. John Calvin said, God cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature in even the smallest degree. So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who, by praising themselves, Obscure his glory as far as they can. But pride, the original sin, the root of all sin, is still more. There is a particular work of our sinful pride by which it merits also the title of deadliest sin. You've heard it said that all sin 
is sin. And that's true. 1 John 3, 4 reads, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And by that definition, sin is any and every transgression, every violation, every failure to obey God's law. In other words, any thought, any word, any deed, outside of God's perfect moral standard, is sin. However, in chapter 5, verses 16 through 17 of that same epistle, while still affirming that all wrongdoing is sin, John also distinguishes between, between a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I want to know which is which. And we find, I think, our answer in Matthew twelve thirty one. There it says, Jesus speaking, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So first... Because I'm guilty of so many sins, I'm really glad to see that every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven people. I've got a lot of them, and I need a lot of forgiveness for them. Every, I think, covers them. Every lie, forgiven. Every theft, forgiven. Every act of adultery, forgiven. Every bit of anger, forgiven. That's good. I need to know that. I need to know that the graces of God are greater than my sins. The accumulation of my sins. And so that's encouraging to see. That's a blessing to see. But we still need to know what's meant by that second part, don't we? The part which says blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. What is that? What does that mean? The blasphemy against the Spirit is found in the context of what the Pharisees are doing in Matthew 22, 24, just prior to Jesus having said what we just read. Jesus had just healed a blind, mute, and demon-possessed man. The Pharisees and all the crowd had all seen the very same miracle. But where the people were openly amazed and began to even wonder aloud if Jesus might be the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the the son of David, the Pharisees. Because he didn't fit their bill. Because he didn't fit their expectations. Refused to acknowledge Jesus' power being from God. They could not accept that this man might be the Messiah. Because he's not the Messiah. He doesn't fit the picture of the Messiah that 
I've painted, that we've painted. So he's excluded according to my expectations. Instead, they declared the healing a work of the devil, saying it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. It's in this way that pride is the sin that leads to death. Although the Pharisees had clearly seen the works of Christ, because he didn't fit their perceptions and expectations of who the Messiah would be, they attributed his miracles to Satan. It wasn't that they didn't believe the healing had happened. They had just a greater belief in their being right. Though the light was bright before them, they were the blind ones. Their ability to speak truth had been muted and in their being possessed by pride. And it's in this way that pride is the sin that leads to death. It's pride that keeps the sinner a sinner. The unrepentant, unrepentant. The unredeemed, unredeemed. And the lost and dying, lost and dead. Just as pride first broke our right relationship with God, it continues to work for our destruction by frustrating or even preventing, if possible, our ability to know a restored and reconciled relationship with Him. Pride is a double-edged sword in that it not only bursts and perpetuates anger, hurt, and shame, but also blinds us to the graces of conviction, humility, and repentance. John Owens has a famous quote. Maybe you've heard it. You probably have. It says, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There's no sin more deserving of our murderous efforts than pride. We need a cure for our pride, something that's a poison to it. We need a death-dealing weapon of sure effect by which to kill our pride. And we find the holy hemlock able to slay our pride in the graces of humility. Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah 57.15 tells us that God dwells not only in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. It's said that the man who sits nearest the dust sits nearest heaven, and that he is low need fear no fall. Another quote from Jonathan Edwards says, Nothing does more to set a person out of the devil's reach than humility. Can you imagine if you were piloting a a luxurious yacht and found a man floundering in the middle of the ocean? Being kind, you pull up alongside and you throw him a life preserver. Grab hold, pull, hang on, I'll pull you in. Can you imagine if despite not knowing how far or in which direction land might be, he waves you off? It's all right, I got it. I'll just swim my way to safety. Despite the ice cold of the water, despite the dangers that may lie beneath it, I got this. I can do it all on my own. We'd look at a man like that as an utter fool. We would plead with him to get on board. But of course, we can't make it. But isn't that where many of us are right now? We're stranded in a sea of pride and unwilling to confess our need of God's rescue through salvation. It's only through God's grace and God's provision that we can daily overcome our innate pride. We need to pray, casting all our cares upon God Study the Bible being sober and vigilant. And be submissive to God by obeying and revering Him. And recognize that it is Jesus Christ who strengthens, establishes, settles, and perfects us. Without Him, we can do nothing. That's one of the greatest truths we can ever hope to know. Isaiah 2.11 says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So where do we come by genuine pride? A pride that is effectual in the daily mortification? Or, excuse me, a, a power that is effectual? In its daily mortification, we come by it through the reading of God's Word, where we learn of our nature, His nature, and the deep love that He has for us in spite of our wretched sin. 
We come by it in learning of Christ and the depth of sacrifice made by him. And that through him we might know rescue, redemption, and reconciliation with a merciful God. We come to it by prayer. For we cast every care upon him, the keeper of our souls, the redeemer of our hearts, the promise of our salvation. In prayer we confess our dependence and our needs, both physical and spiritual, to the one who gives gifts and every provision. We come by it through observing the commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our mind, all of our soul, and to love others as we would desire to be loved as well. The first and second commandments of Christ. Jesus, the humblest man to ever live, taught that the greatest person in heaven would be the humblest. Matthew 18.4 The greatest virtue found in heaven is humility. We see in Revelations 4, 10 and 11 that all those who receive crowns in heaven are quick to cast them down before the Lord, acknowledging that He alone is deserving of every crown. You know, we read, I was so blessed given light of this sermon. By the first two stanzas in the last song we, we sang, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. Amen. In closing, I want to say this. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. A proud Christian is a mythical beast. Let our every boast, as 1 Corinthians one thirty one tells us, be in the Lord. He alone is worthy. Would you bow your heads with me as I close this in prayer? Heavenly Father, help all those today that are in Christ to live for and model Christ well. Father, help us in our weakness to overcome this wretched pride which permeates our being and grant us our desire to think Speak and walk humbly. Lead us, Lord, into bearing a clearer image of your Son and guard us against doing anything from rivalry or conceit. But strengthen us in unity and humility that we might count others more significant than ourselves. Grant us as well a nearer walk with you, encouraging and building us up equipping us for greater services to Christ. Lord, for our attending friends who have not yet received the glorious grace 
freely given in Christ. Through his perfect life and the sacrificial shedding of his innocent blood for the ransom of our sins. May your Holy Spirit use your holy word to bring down the walls of pride which hinder their salvation. May they even now cry out to Jesus for rescue. May each of our lives be ordered according to your ways. And may each of us be constrained by the indwelling spirit as we model Christ's humility before the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.